0: The following program is brought to you by Caltech. So should we go ahead and get started? All right, so it's, uh, it's a great pleasure to introduce uh, Yanbei, Yanbei Chen. And uh, Yanbei is, is uh, local here. He's a professor in uh, PMA in physics and uh, an expert of about all things, uh, quantum measurement, uh, interferometers, gravitational waves, that whole nexus of things. So Yanbei's uh, trajectory, he, he finished his Ph.D. with Kip Thorne here at Caltech in 2003. He did a one-year postdoc here at Caltech, and then he went on to the Max Planck Institute in uh, Potsdam and, uh, in 2004, and he led a small research, uh, junior research group there. And then in 2007, he came back to Caltech, and uh, he's been, he's an associate professor now as, as, as of 2010. So, anyway, without any further ado, on, uh, Yanbei. thank you. <laughs> Does it work? Okay. <laughs> thank you, Keith. Um, so today, I will talk about the fundamentals of optical interferometry for gravitational wave detection. Um, so my talk will be in three parts. First, I'll briefly mention what is gravitational waves, um, some introduction. Then I'll talk about, uh, gravitational detection on the Earth. Actually, I'll talk a lot more about gravitational detections on the Earth than in space, because when I'm talking about, you know, uh, ground-based detection, I also talk about how quantum, uh, quantum, uh, how quantum enhancement can help us, uh, have better sensitivity. Um, in space, it's not completely clear whether gravitational wave detection can be really helped by quantum. But I will try to, you know, maybe trigger some thinking. Um, so, I'll start with gravitational waves. Briefly speaking, what are gravitational waves? If we have matter accelerating, they will actually cause oscill- oscillation in space-time curvature and these oscillations will propagate and that is, roughly speaking, gravitational waves. And then, if there's some, you know, these in the universe when they propagate to the Earth, normally it's gonna be very weak perturbation of the Minkowski spacetime um, around us. Um, so if we put in a little more math, um, basically if we have a nearly flat uh, spacetime, we can write down the separation, you know, in terms of a metric. And then the metric would then be the, the Minkowski metric plus a correction, uh, a correction uh, tensor. So basically, what does it mean? Um, well, this correction tensor, the, the trace-reverse version of this correction tensor, if you put it into the so-called Lorentz gauge, um, it'll satisfy an equation that is almost like a wave equation. Uh, and then on the right-hand side, as a source term, it is the so-called stress-energy tensor. And what this stress-energy tensor has the time-time component that is the energy density, the time space component will be the momentum density and the space space components will be the stress that is in the region um, so this is very much analogous to the electromagnetic field where the vector potential is sourced by the four vector which contains the current density uh, the the charge density and the current density so this is in the, in a very weak field scenario of course so if we if we take this weak field scenario and if we say that maybe we can do, like, just like in the EM field, we can do a multipole expansion of the gravitational wave. Then we find out, it turns out, um, basically, the leading order of radiation turns out to be the mass quadrupole radiation. And the mass quadrupole radiation is proportional to the quadrupole moment doubled out divided by the distance, we, uh, you know, between the source and, and the field point. Um, you can sort of see that this is the right, you know, uh, kind of units because the quadrupole moment is the mass of the system that is oscillating times the size of the system squared. And then the double dot is this whole thing times the frequency at which the oscillation goes. And also, by the way, L omega is just the velocity, the characteristic velocity of the system. And therefore, on the numerator, we just have the kinetic energy of that system. And in the denominator, it's just the distance away from that, from that system. And because in in relativity we have G equal to C equal to 1, we basically have, you know, V is just like um, some kind of order of unit, order of dimensionless quantity. Therefore, this H is dimensionless. It's roughly M over D times the velocity squared. And, uh, you know, and this H, at the end, what does it mean? It measures the relative change of the size of space and time, let's say, roughly speaking, in our coordinate system will eventually know what it means. I'll show you exactly how does H influence matter and light. But basically, in terms of wave generation, we have this kinetic energy divided by a distance. But, you know, it looks interesting, but if you put in all the units, if you put in all the Gs and Cs, it turns out it's a very, very weak, small number. Just to give you an example, if you're one meter away from the uh, hydrogen bomb that is most powerful ever tested. Um, this is two times ten to the um, 17 joule in terms of energy. And if you have this much energy in the kinetic energy, and you're one meter away from that bomb, you can measure ten to the minus 27 in terms of the h, which is the relative change in space and time. So it's very very tiny. Obviously, if you want to do this on the Earth, it's very very difficult. Um, but Fortunately, uh, we can, we have astronomical phenomena. Um, if we think about, there are very extreme processes that are happening um, in the universe. For example, if we have some kind of five solar mass object somehow accelerated to nearly the speed of light, maybe some fraction, then if we take this kinetic energy, and if this amount of energy is radiated in gravitational waves, in the Virgo cluster, which is kind of the closest galaxy cluster near us, then we can have an H that is 3 times 10 to the minus 21. That is much, much larger than this. As it turns out, you know, our precision measurement technology these days are able to measure this kind of um, strain, um, this kind of H. So that kind of starts with, um, you know, about the, the indirect evidence of gravitational waves. So this has been mentioned by the uh, previous talk. Basically, um, the, the direct evidence of gravitational wave, indirect evidence, come from this uh, binary pulsar that was discovered in 1974. So a binary pulsar is basically two neutron stars, and then at least one of them is emitting radio pulses toward the Earth. So we can see this, but then through the modulation of this, of this radio pulse, we can see that, you know, this is actually, this neutron star is in the binary. And then for this particular pulsar that was discovered by these two guys, um, the orbital period is 7.75 hours. And then people actually measured through the relativistic corrections to the orbit. People actually calculated the masses and the orbital parameters of this binary. And they actually calculated How much energy is going to be carried away by gravitational waves in terms of quadruple radiation and then if energy is carried away by quadruple radiation you know when the orbital energy of a Keplerian binary uh, decreases the orbit will tend to shrink and the orbital frequency will tend to increase and the orbital period would also decrease and then people did actually measure that change. Of course, currently, the gravitational wave frequency is very, very low. It's twice the orbital frequency, it turns out. Um, It's 71 um, microhertz. And then people did measure over the, you know, uh, scale now 30 years, and they compared the prediction of general relativity with the actual change in the orbital period, and it agrees very well. So it's not only evidence for gravitational waves. It's also a very good test of, of general relativity. For example, it'll be, you know, testing against dipole or monopole radiations. Um, So, but the problem is, you know, as it turns out, at the current frequency, uh, the frequency is very low. As I'll talk about, this is a very low frequency that is not, perhaps, accessible to us very easily. And the other thing is, at this low frequency, the amplitude of the gravitational wave is also very weak. But, you know, in, as calculation goes, in 300 million years, You know, this this binary would would actually have the orbit shrink to the stage where they will start, uh, go around each other at 5 hertz, and then the wave would be, like, 10 hertz, and then in a few minutes after that, the frequency will go up to kilohertz, and the two neutron stars will collide with each other. Um, that would be very dramatic because, as it turns out, this will be the frequency band that we'll be aiming at on the Earth for detecting gravitational waves. But then the problem is, you know, we only know a handful of such objects in our galaxy, and then they, you know, merge in the scale of 100 million years. So that means that on average, we, you know, on the average of 100 million years, perhaps, um, the estimation is, like, from, you know, in the Milky Way galaxy, there could be 20 to, you know, 1,000, but that's, like, the very optimistic estimates of such merger events happening in, in our own galaxy. So the message is if we're able to go see a lot more galaxies far away distance, then we might be able to catch such events if there are such binaries that will eventually merge in other galaxies. (coughs) So so basically then that introduces me to talking about um, sources of gravitational waves. Basically the two neutron stars we talked about are gonna be belonging to this high frequency category of gravitational waves. So these are basically at a frequency band of above 1 hertz and below 10 kilohertz. The 10 kilohertz is basically set by the scale of the masses of such systems, which will be the scale of solar masses. And then this 1 hertz is pretty much artificially set, because on the ground, perhaps I'll talk about, it's very difficult to measure frequencies below 1 hertz. So these sources contain, base, uh, for example, neutron star binaries or binaries containing neutron stars or black holes, or or rotating neutron stars where the neutron stars are not completely spherical, or maybe collapsing stars, etc. So so the some of the real important reasons why we want to detect these waves is, for example, because we want to understand the structure of neutron stars. And also we want to know the details of black holes. Not only that, they're just very compact and very you know, heavy, but exactly what is the space-time structure of a black hole and what, you know, space-time structure of binary black holes when they collide. Um, on the other hand, there's another population of, of, of gravitational wave sources in the lower frequencies. So a lot of these, these dots, for example, they are in this frequency scale because they're all involving black holes of 10 to the 6 solar masses, or 10 to the 5 solar masses. These are the typical masses of the black holes in the centers of galaxies, and and therefore they set these kind of scales. And therefore, naturally, we want to probe, uh, we want to set up interferometers to detect waves that are at, for example, 10 millihertz. And then we will be able to probe the mergers of these, these black holes in the center of the galaxies And then, not only will we be able to have very high signal-to-noise ratios for detecting these gravitational waves, we'll also be able to understand, you know, for example, why, how often, and in what kind of states are these black holes merging with each other, because these will be black holes in the centers of galaxies. So, let me then start talking about ground-based detectors. So, um, I will basically talk about optical interferometry, the fundamentals of that. And then I will talk about how quantum mechanics and how quantum, well, essentially, because our sensitivity would be, could be mostly limited by quantum noise. And then techniques of quantum um, optics can help us improve our sensitivity. And then I'll talk about limitations of gravitational detection on the, on the ground. So let me, before doing this, We have only said that H sort of measures the change of the size of space and time, but it's very imprecise. What we really need to know is to say in what sense does this H modifies um, the the motion of mass and light. So here, let's be more specific. All through my talk, we'll be considering a wave that is a plane wave along a z direction. And then it turns out there's a coordinate system in which we can write down the metric perturbation in a very simple way. And for this, for this Z wave, the metric correction only has uh, spatial components. It only has X and Y corrections. And therefore, it's completely transverse, because X and Y are transverse to the direction along which the wave propagates. And along X, X, X and Y, Y direction, the H is opposite. And therefore, this matrix is also trace-free. On the other hand, the XY components are symmetric because this has to be a symmetric matrix. And therefore, this is, this coordinate system is called the TT gauge. And this plus and cross functions, which are functions of T minus Z because that's the wave propagation, these are called the two polarizations of the plane gravitational wave. So, so let's remember these, these two H plus and H cross as, as the, as the two polarizations of the wave amplitude but we're not going to use that previous coordinate system we're going to go to the so called local lorentz frame uh, around some kind of central object that i'm considering in the in the region that i'm spatial region as it turns out if i go to the local lorentz frame i can write down uh, basically i can describe the motion of matter as they're all feeling tidal a tidal gravity field basically for any object whose location is at x the, 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 you know, the mass times the acceleration is equal to one half the mass times this thing, which is just the H matrix times the location, plus any other non-gravitational force. And therefore, the effect of gravitational wave is just like a tidal force. The, the word tidal basically means the farther away you are from the center, the bigger the force you're, you're feeling. And of course, it's gravity because it's proportional to mass. The force is proportional to mass. So, if you actually have free masses, an array of free masses, then you can integrate this equation because if you can eliminate the non gravitational force. What you get is the change of the location of the object due to gravitational wave is equal to, uh, there's a 1 half, which I forgot. It's a 1 half, hjktt uh, times x of k. So, what that means is that now, literally, this h one-half, H is the deformation, is the strain with which these array of masses are gonna deform. Um, If we have H plus here, um, the plus polarization, and if H plus indeed is positive, then it means along the X direction, things are gonna stretch. Then along Y direction, things are gonna squeeze. But of course, if it is oscillating, then this pattern is gonna oscillate. Um, On the other hand, the other polarization basically means that matter on the... um, 45-degree rotated axes are going to be stretching and squeezing. And, well, the reason why we went to the low Lorentz frame of the center of these objects is that it turns out if the region has a size that is much less than the gravitational wavelength, which we will see will be true for ground-based detectors, um, it turns out light propagation in this coordinate system is not affected by gravitational waves. So we're only left with a force field that is just a classical force field. So then we can just forget about gravitational waves and we can say that our problem now is just redefined as measuring a classical force field that is due to gravitational waves. And then we can just apply all the tools we have for measuring this force field. But of course the one thing that we have to remember is that the field, as much as we can, we should make the separation of these objects far away because then the displacement is proportional to the initial separation times the gravitational length, or the gravitational wave amplitude. So then it comes to the setup of, of a ground-based detector. Here I'm already using this um, a figure from the website of the LIGO, LIGO website, and the LIGO means Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. So here is a schematic uh, plot of this of this interferometer because you see this uh, squeezing, stretching pattern. You obviously, you think about micro interferometers that match this pattern. So for example, if we really have the z-axis, like the wave propagating along the z-axis and this is in the xy-plane, um, what we have then is if we think about this as the center and if our arm length is 4 kilometers, Then it turns out, as long as we consider waves that are below, you know, a few kilohertz, we're always fine, we're within the region where the size of the detector is much less than the wavelength of the gravitational wave, as long as we're below a few kilohertz, below 10 kilohertz, let's say. Um, And that's the frequency we're aiming at in in the LIGO detector. So, and then let's think about how the gravitational wave works in this case. So basically, um, the light will drive the common mode. So this is set up in such a way that let's imagine the light drives the common mode of the interferometer. So here you have arm cavities, but that's just trying to enhance the amount of power in the arms. Let's say this arm is on resonance with this light, so the light pumps here, and then there's a stronger resonant light in in the cavity. And let's now say that we have a gravitational wave as marked by these arrows. So basically these arms stretches, and these arms squeeze. So what exactly happens is these two far mirrors will move. All these near mirrors, they're not going to move because the motion is relative to the, the motion is proportional to the distance away from the center. So these far mirror will move closer. This will move farther away. So the arm length is going to be modified by the gravitational wave. And then when that happens, the, two, the lengths of the cavities are going to be different. And then that difference is going to cause a signal light to come out from this port, which used to have nothing coming out. So that's the idealized version. So then you would have a signal light that is proportional to the, you know, strain of the gravitational wave. Um, of course, if you have a photo detector here right now to see that signal light, you're going to see something completely quadratic in, in, the, in the, you know, in the signal. So what you do is you have to impose a local oscillator light. So what? you know in reality what happens in, in LIGO right now is that there's a small offset that is done into one of these cavities in such a way that there's already a phase shift so that there's already some a little bit of light coming out from the dark port even when there's no gravitational waves so 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 this setup is like this following picture like the 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 intensity of light here depends on the phase shift the phase shift between the two arms are zero, you have completely zero, and there's no power, but then you're com- just a little bit offset here, a little bit offset here. So, so the reason why you only be a little bit offset here is that the laser noise of this laser will still pretty much uh, c- um, you know, cancel out from here. It doesn't really come out with a big fraction. It's only a tiny little bit of laser noise coming out, and then some of this carrier light comes out as a local oscillator, Therefore, this suppresses the laser noise. So you have to come out not too much. If it comes out too much, laser noise is bad. If it comes out too little, of course, you have other noises here. So you have to sort of find out the right amplitude for local oscillator. That is so-called the DC readout scheme. But for purposes of understanding of the fundamentals, we can just think about this as H as just the differential signal, and this local oscillator has no noise, and this is beating with that H, and then detecting our, our signal. Um, so this, this LIGO detector actually, um, the, there are two such, two such sites. And then there's a, one in uh, Livingston, Louisiana, and the other in Hanford, Washington, and they're like 3,000 kilometers apart. Um, and also the arms are chosen in such a way that they're as, as parallel as possible, but they're on the surface of the Earth, so they cannot be completely, completely parallel. So this separation allows a little bit of, uh, of localization, triangulation, but since you only have two detectors, you cannot completely localize on the, on the sky. Um, and then this, this, the pictures of these two sides are, are interesting that they're, they're exactly the same in terms of the, the instrument. They're almost the same in terms of inst- they're, they're suppo- the four kilometer interferometer is exactly the same, but then outside it the, looks kind of different. So it, it turns out there used to be two detectors in Hanford, uh, Washington, but then it could be that in the near future that one set of these interferometers could be shipped to India to build another interferometer, but that's not completely decided yet. So, in fact, on, um, in, the, you know, in the entire world, there's not only the LIGO detectors, but there's a global network of, of detectors. And there are, you know, in Europe, there's the Virgo detector and the Geo 600 detector. Um, um, Virgo detector is a uh, three kilometer in arm length is comparable to LIGO detector. The Geo 600 is a little, sh- is 600 meters long, so it's somewhat short, shorter. And in, in Japan, um, there was a three, there is a 300 detec- meter detector called Tama 300, but they're building a new detector called Kagura uh, in the Kamioka mine, which is also three kilometers long arm length. And this is the LIGO India that I mentioned. So basically uh, right now um, um, LIGO uh, I you know these there's LIGO and Virgo and Geo and TAMA detectors and Kagra would be in construction and LIGO India is being planned. Um, so in terms of the history of LIGO operation and, and the level of sensitivity um, LIGO has um, started science runs since 2002, and you can see that, you know, during these science runs, the sensitivity is still is, you know, improving between the different runs, and eventually from S1 to S5, the fifth science run, the, the sensitivity is in this purple curve, and it sort of matches the the black curve, which is the in, initial design, design curve. So the, the science requirement uh science requirement sensitivity so and then um after 2007 there were also improvements done to the LIGO detector uh, such that it even has better sensitivity than the than the design requirement and that's called enhanced LIGO detector so so but the aim of today's talk is actually to show that um the level of sensitivity of these detectors turns out to be in terms of uh, spectral density, is two times 10 to the minus 23 per root hertz at around 100 to 300 hertz. So this is the level of sensitivity. You know, if you still remember, I showed the Virgo cluster object amplitude of gravitational wave that was 10 to the minus 27. So this shows you that this can even, you know, this is actually can even see an event that is less dramatic than the one I was talking about. So, and here, the spectral density represents such a quantity that is noise per unit power. And here, I'm showing the square root of the spectral density, and it's related to the RMS noise in, in this way. So, and then, I will go on to start talk about um, the, um, the sensitivity. How, how roughly with, with optical interferometry can you reach such a sensitivity? So, it's basically um, in terms of just the optics is a straightforward uh, kind of exercise. So what you find out is that um, if you have a Michelson interferometer, the it's essentially that you have this light, and then in the two arms, it goes through different phase shift, and then you're just comparing the phase shift between these two light, two beams of light, and the phase shift is sort of two pi over lambda times L H, because one half L H is the you know distance. Um, so And then the question is, what is the H that is measurable? And the H that is measurable, of course, is lambda over 2 pi L, you know, and then divided by the number of photons available to you during the time of your measurement. You know, lambda over 2 pi L is just the typical scale, right? So, and this thing at the end is the, the light power times the duration divided by the you know, photon's energy. So this is fairly easy to estimate. And then what you find out is that because this the RMS noise is related in this way to the duration of your measurement, you actually have a constant spectral density because you know this delta H is 1 over square root of time means your noise is a white noise. So your noise spectrum is just lambda over 2 pi L times the square root of H omega 0 over I. And this gives you 10 to, 20, 10 to the 20, per root hertz. So this is four kilometers, this five watt is sort of maybe the LIGO optical power. So this is still 300, factor of 300 away from the LIGO sensitivity, but not that far. So then you can think about the reason why we, there's arm, there's arm cavity and there's the so-called power recycling cavity there in front of the LIGO mirror. Because, so the reason that you have these nested cavities is that you always make the cavities on resonance. So therefore, the power here is bigger than the power here, and the power here is bigger than the power here. And the way to think about it is that there are two-fold kind of amplification. The first one is fairly easy. This power should just be the power in the previous page we should have plugged in, which is the input power in front of the Michelson. So it turns out for LIGO, this is 50 to 60 times. And then you get a square root of this number in terms of the sensitivity improvement, square root of the power, square root of this one. And then the arm cavity is a little more tricky because the arm cavity, there's, there's two things in the arm cavity, in, in the cavity. One thing is how long, does, how many times does light bounce in the cavity, and, and the other is what is the storage time of light in the cavity. So it turns out the light bounces 40 times, 40 times in the cavity, and, and it, it turns out if, for this cavity, for frequencies below the so-called bandwidth of the cavity, the 40 bounces is just the 40 times of improvement, the amplitude sensitivity. So therefore the naive picture on the right-hand side is the following, is saying that, you know, you take the square root of this number, then you take 40 and you multiply, you get roughly 300. And that is the amplification, naive amplification. But the problem is because the light bounces many times in the arm cavity. If the gravitational wave frequency is too high and the gravitational wave period is too short, if during the storage time of the light in the cavity, your gravitational wave changes sign, you know, oscillates too fast, then you don't gain sensitivity anymore. And therefore, when frequency of gravitational wave is too fast, you start lose sensitivity at this knee frequency which is comparable to the light storage rate, light decay rate from the cavity or one over the light storage time in in the cavity. So um, I won't bother you with these formulas, but basically that that turns out to be the gain factor. You gain this this two over T due to the number of bounces, but then you gain this this factor that depends on frequency where you have a gamma which is the knee frequency of your gain which then this gamma is related with is equal to this one, which is just you know, 1 over the storage time of light in the cavity. Um, so therefore, you pretty much understand the, this, this noise. And this is basically the photon counting noise. So this is just called the shot noise um, in your interferometer. It's due to the discreteness of photons, right? We have 1 over square root of n. So the other maybe complementary noise to that is the fact that these photons actually kick on the mirrors because, you know, for each, for each photon, you have this kind of momentum. And then when the photon is reflected, you kick on the mirror. On the other hand, the number of photon is, is fluctuating during any duration of time. And that noisy kick is gonna give you another noise. So here, I won't go into the details, but what I will show you is that that radiation pressure noise, as it turns out, it just scales the opposite way um, from the shot noise, from the counting photon, the other sensing photon counting noise, called shot noise. So basically, when you, so this this blue curve is this curve that I talked about first, which is just due to not enough number of photons. The more power you have, the lower the shot noise. It goes like 1 over the square root of power. On the other hand, the red noise is the radiation pressure noise, where you know the higher the power, the higher the radiation pressure noise. And together, if you actually plot the, the, the total, if you sum up the noise spectrum, and you carefully plot the, the, the envelope of the total noise, you find out that the noise is bounded by the so-called standard quantum limit. Um, and the standard quantum limit turns out to be given by a number that is quantity formula that is not dependent on the details of your laser interferometer. It only depends on the mass of your mirror, the h-bar, and the length of the the, uh, the arm. Um, so basically, this has to do with the fact that, on the one hand, your shot noise measures how well you measure the mirror. Your radiation pressure noise measures you know, when you actually measure this mirror so carefully, you're actually imposing quantum mechanical back action into the mirror. And therefore, together, the total noise is subject to this so-called standard quantum limit, which only depends on the fundamental constants of quantum mechanics. So, now, this is kind of interesting. I will mention a little more about this, this standard quantum limit. It turns out we will have to surpass the standard quantum limit to some degree in order to improve our detector beyond maybe the next generation, um, so that comes about in in the section of you know quantum improvements so basically um, if we put this this noise right now into the context of what what is these uh, quantum optical fluctuations, we have the shot noise and the radiation pressure noise that I mentioned, and these two noise two kinds of noise they you know the shot noise is a dominant noise in the in, in the in first-generation LIGO um, sensitivity. But then there are other noise sources that actually dominate at lower frequencies, so the radiation pressure noise and the standard quantum limit do not yet show up in the first generation that has been completed. So, and these other noises concern, you know, the thermal fluctuations. For example, this test mass internal thermal noise means that the fluctuation of the thermal fluctuation in the shape of this mirror and in the thickness of, of this coating material and this, the suspension thermal basically concerns the fluctuation in the suspension system maybe in the suspension point here maybe in the fiber here and the seismic noise is basically the the vibration here uh, you know coupling down to the to the mirror um, but I will not focus on on those those noise I will focus on the more fun, fundamental and optical uh, original originating noise so now, so in the second generation, what we will do, the, you know, the, the gravitational wave community will, you know, try to actually push down all these thermal noise and seismic noises so that at the end, um, even though the first generation detector, for example, the first generation detector that has been, com- you know, completed here is far away from the standard quantum limit, the second generation detector, which is advanced LIGO, which is now being installed, and perhaps would start operating in 2015. Maybe soon have detection. Um, this is actually fairly close to the standard quantum limit uh, that corresponds to the 40-kilogram mirrors that it has. And then the community is planning third-generation detectors, and these detectors would then, you know, we will actually have much better sensitivity, but then they may have to really go beyond the standard quantum limit. So, therefore, I will try to talk about quantum enhancements that actually um, will be implemented in these upgrades of of gravitational detectors. So, just to talk about the the basics, um, we have, um, just to talk about perhaps describing quantum, just to, in order to describe the quantum modifications a little more uh, better, let's separate the electric field, or maybe the optical field in general, into um, modulation, uh, quadrature fields, basically E1 cosine times E2 sine t. And this omega zero is supposed to be the carrier frequency in the experiment, and these E1, E2 are supposed to be slowly varying. And then, In the phasor diagram, we can plot the E1 and E2 in different axes, and the way it goes is that if you have a carrier field along this phase, then E1 would be the amplitude quadrature and E2 would be the phase quadrature, because these are amplitude and phase modulations. On the other hand, you can have different carrier phase, and then E1 and E2 would actually have different meanings, because you have different combinations of these E1 and E2 as amplitude and phase modulations. So, and therefore, these quadrature fields can be quite flexible. Um, So, by the way, just because we're showing this, it's also, in principle, if we have any quadrature field um, in some optical propagating in some direction, if we superimpose a carrier with with a phase phi, then the amplitude quadrature of that particular carrier would then be modulating the amplitude of that light and then if you have a photodetector there, you'll be detecting that particular combination, and that will make a homodyne detection of this particular quadrature. Um, if we take this quadrature picture, it turns out as we quantize the quadrature fields, this these quadrature fields are much like um, displacement and momentum of mechanical resonators, mechanical oscillators. And the difference is that E1 and E2 actually are fields, and they each oscillate at all different frequencies. And at each frequency, E1 and E2 satisfy this Heisenberg uncertainty principle in the frequency domain. And then there are different quantum states that we can have. For example, the vacuum state would have the same amount of fluctuation between E1 and E2. And then the coherent field will basically be, can be viewed as a, a, a classical carrier light superimposed with a vacuum fluctuation. And then a squeezed state will be those where, you know, E1, E2 have actually the same area, um, but then different shapes of noise ellipses. And then, if you superimpose these um, with a carrier, then you have, a, here you have a phase, a phase squeeze state, and here you have an amplitude squeeze state, because this state has a very small phase fluctuation, and this has a very small amplitude fluctuation. And then, uh, you know, in the same way. So let's come back and talk about quantum fluctuations again. And let's just first be sure that, you know, exactly where does the fluctuation, where, which fluctuations we care about It's actually not the fluctuations of this light because this light drives the common mode and it really turns to the, to the, to the, to the laser. And then it's really these, these fluctuations that we should care about. It, it turns out if we, want to inject squeezing, it is actually these ports that we should talk about injecting squeezing. Um, let's then look at the dynamics of the interferometer once more. Basically, we have amplitude quadrature and phase quadrature light coming in, and then this will superimpose with a carrier light. Then this E1 would become amplitude mo- uh, fluctuation, and then this is a force acting on the mirror. And this E2 would just be a phase modulation. So now if the mirror moves under gravitational waves and also under, driven by the amplitude fluctuation of this uh, light, then that motion also modulates the carrier and then create more phase fluctuation. Then the picture at the outgoing field is like this. So the outgoing amplitude modulation is the same. The output phase modulation is the input phase modulation superimposed with the square root of the power times the motion of the mirror, which contains gravitational wave induced motion and amplitude modulation driven motion, and this driven because there's the m omega squared is the response of a free mass. So, and now let's think about how can we do squeezing? How can we use squeezing to help? Well, squeezing certainly, if you squeeze the phase noise, um, that's going to be interesting if your face noise is the dominant noise, as in the first generation of detectors, and that is the case right now. So if you do squeeze you know, this one, you actually make this one bigger. It doesn't help you beat the standard quantum limit, it turns out, because the products of the two is still the same. But it actually helps you improve your noise at high frequencies, it turns out. Um, but you can actually think about it a little more, because squeezing works in all different ways. So what happens if you take this particular combination, and then you say, well, I go to the input port, I find out exactly which combination it is, and let me squeeze that particular combination, and and anti-squeeze the other one, but I don't care about the other one, then you can improve your interferometer sensitivity. But the problem is, because the coupling here is frequency dependent, you can only help this at one frequency. So it's a narrow band improvement. But if you can figure out a way to do a frequency dependent combination of the squeezing, you can improve the sensitivity globally at all frequencies, and that the standard quantum limit. So so the other way is even more dramatic, which is because we have talked about doing a hominid detection. But then what if you do a hominid detection at a different quadrature at the output port? And that basically means you project the outgoing field onto this direction, and then you sum everything up. But during this process, if you make these angles just right so that this actually cancels with that, because they're all driven by coherently by the same thing, then you're gonna only be left with the signal and this shot noise uh, contribution, and you won't have any back action. But of course, because this coupling is frequency dependent, you have to figure out a way to do this homodyne detection in a, in a frequency dependent way. But then you can do evading quantum back action. So. So these frequency-dependent squeezing and the frequency-dependent uh, homodyne detection, you know, combination, this frequency-dependent homodyne detection are, are the key or are in, theoretically are ways to enhance your quantum sensitivity without, without limit. But of course, in, in reality, you're going to be limited by your optical loss and optical power. So, so it turns out there are ways to achieve the frequency-dependent squeezing and the frequency-dependent um, Homonide detection. So basically, um, what you do is you, you use filter cavities in here, and these filter cavities would actually allow you to rotate the quadrature the squeezing is 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 in, and then to rotate the homonide detection angle. So, and this, basically these are cavities that are detuned from your carrier frequency in the right, just the right way. Um, so I won't go into much details about this, but let me show. Uh, I'll skip something, but let me show the progress, the, the gradual progress of squeezing in the gravitational wave community. So, um, so basically, I think roughly 10 years ago, the community started trying to get squeezing um, enhancement in the gravitational wave frequency band. So because previously the squeezing all happens at all very high frequencies, and normally people didn't care about sub kilohertz frequency band. But, but within the past decade, there have been a lot of progress For example, starting from the 2004, there's the first demonstration of sub-kilohertz squeezing, and then followed up by, you know, injection squeezing at the Caltech 40-meter lab. And then, a few years ago, in the GEO 600 interferometer, which is 600 meter long, um, they have demonstrated 3.5 dB squeezing uh, improvement of sensitivity. And then, also recently, in in LIGO detector, there has been a 2 dB improvement of sensitivity. Actually, this improvement, it it is actually the improvement beyond the previously best sensitivity for gravitational wave detection. So therefore, it's very significant. Um, So the fact is that if people think about why there's only two dB squeezing, what they found out is that because the total loss of the optical path from the injecting of the squeezing to the entering the interferometer, you know, and then coming out and to the photo detector and being detected, there's 50 to 60% of loss that is being estimated. And therefore, you can only use 2 dB squeezing because most of your quantum coherence is gone. You're mixing with other ordinary vacuum. You're not squeezed. But the calculation shows that the current design of advanced LIGO probably has 20% of loss, and therefore, in principle, there can be 6 dB of improvement in just advanced LIGO, which is being constructed. And, And in the future, well, the aim of the community then would be that to get less than 2 dB, a 2% loss, and then to be able to use 10, 10, 10 dB and above squeezing. So that's that's the future plan. But here, I think the summary for ground-based detection is improvement is that loss, optical loss, seem to be a quite big issue for improving um, improving sensitivity using squeezing and quantum improvements. So and let me mention the, the constraints of, of low frequency of gravitational wave detection on the ground. So basically, um, I think it summarized, there are basically two issues. One thing is how do you actually hold your test mass? If you have a suspension system, then if you have a pendulum, then if you want to detect below one hertz uh, signals, how long does your pendulum has to be? And that, and the thermal noise in the pendulum seem to be a big problem. Um, And that one, the two possible fixes are basically using atom interferometers. Well, people are basically saying you can juggle your mirrors, but then you can juggle your atoms. Basically, you can use atom clouds, which you throw as the test masses, and that's maybe one possibility. And the other one is to use a torsional um, system where you use two bars that are suspended by a wire, and this restoring force is torsion. And in that case, you might circumvent some of the suspension noise. But it, but, but neither scheme shows a lot of, you know. Well, this one, the atom interferometry, is a new kind of recent proposal, and then you can go to space, etc., and then further improve your sensitivity. But this torsional system is not clear how low you can go and how good the sensitivity is eventually can be. Um, and the other problem in the Earth is that you have the so-called gravity gradient noise, which is the motion of material on the ground are causing Newton- fluctuation in the Newtonian gravitational field and that field also mimics gravitational wave and that is fairly difficult to deal with. So therefore you probably want to go to space because in space you don't necessarily have to suspend so well and then in space you may have less Newtonian, Newtonian noise like this. So, and that's the, the that's the, I guess the motivation. And when we really think about going to space, we will have to think about interferometer with long arms because in the space, we're not like in the Earth, constrained by a few kilometers of length. We can go as long as possible. Then we, we have to think about exactly how long uh, we have to go and how do we calculate our interferometer sensitivity you know, in, in such a situation. Um, so it turns out, if we return to this plane wave picture, we have the metric plus the two polarizations of the wave. If you want to calculate the sensitivity of the wave, uh, uh, you know, a phase modulation of a electromagnetic wave modulated by the gravitational wave, we have to solve a wave equation that is like this. A wave equation for the scalar, let's just mimic use the scalar wave for the EM wave. And then this metric is the gravitational wave, contains the gravitational wave. So, after some you know calculation what comes out is basically the following you can find out that along the ray along the previously along the unperturbed ray direction of your optical field you have an additional phase shift due to the gravitational wave so this is what this equation means this k vector is the previous k vector of the of the wave and this h is the gravitational wave so it basically phase modulates your your electromagnetic wave, but you have to have the right, you have to dot the direction of the wave propagation, electromagnetic wave propagation into the gravitational wave tensor. And this is the formula for prescription for calculating the phase shift. And then if you actually do the calculation, what you find is that just for the Z direction propagating wave, uh, for the plus and cross polarizations, the phase shift has two parts. Uh, the, the first part is easy, it's just H times L times polarization tensor dotted into the EM wave propagation direction. That's the same as in low frequencies. But then you have this other phase factor that is due to the wave propagation effect. So just to summarize what happens, let's, let's plot this, this plot. So let's say that the wave is propagating along the Z direction, gravitational wave is along the z direction and our light along k, and there's a theta angle between the k and the gravitational wave direction. So if k is along the x direction, theta is pi over two, that's just like our p- previous Michelson interferometer case, which is previously the strongest signal situation. In that case, we, we have this blue curve that shows the signal decay. So basically, the well, frequency is higher it decays, and then the typical scale at which frequency, the sensitivity decays, is when omega L is equal to one. So it means that when the length of your arm is comparable to gravitational wavelength, the signal starts to decay. So you don't gain signal anymore. So basically, at the beginning, when you increase your arm length, you, you gain more signal, but then, gradually, gradually, you don't gain anymore, then you start to lose signal. So, but then, At different angles, when k is at different angles, there's actually different zero points of suppression. Therefore, the situation is a little bit complicated. But the point is, when the frequency becomes higher, when omega L is comparable to 1, things start to become not not as good. So the optimal wavelength, if you want to detect gravitational waves, if you want to use enhancement very well, seems to be when omega L is equal to one. So now let's start thinking about how interferometry works um, in in this picture. So if you think about it, we we didn't talk about how the masses are affected in this new gauge. It turns out in this new coordinate system, the light phase is modulated, but then the test masses are not affected by gravitational waves. So you only need to account for, apparently you only need to account for You can say that my test masses are fixed here, and then when light, this is the space view. So I have A, I send light to B, and B comes back. I send light to C, light comes back. Maybe that's it. So in the space-time picture, I have this A coming, the light going to B and coming back, and coming to C, coming back. I compare the phase here, and then I can obtain the phase shift which will, you know, here I do the calculation just using my integrals, phase modulation due to gravitational waves, I can get my sensitivity. Um, But of course the problem is um, the test masses are not affected by gravitational waves, but they're still affected by the noisy forces. So what happens is in this new coordinate system, you have to calculate the following way. So these A and Bs, they are not affected by gravitational waves, but their motions will be just noisy motions due to random forces acting on the test masses. And then you basically get your signal, but then you also have local displacement noise, and you have shot noise when you combine the signals. Um, So now because you have these local noises, so the optimal way, of course, in space, if you want to get better sensitivity is still to increase your arm length, because the longer the arm you get, the, the larger the signal you get, and the local motion affects you relatively less. So if you want to avoid the noise from local disturbances, you better have arm length as long as possible in such a way that the reduced, your arm length is comparable to reduced wavelength of the gravitational wave. So because then the signal doesn't get amplified anymore, as our integral shows. So that means, you know, if you're frequency is 10 millihertz where the supermassive black hole signals are, you better have reduced wavelengths of five million kilometers. Um, and, uh, but then, if your telescope is limited with an aperture of f- 0.5 meters, then apparently the problem is after five million kilometers, if your wavelength is one micron, you have a beam spot size of 12.5 kilometers. Um, and then, only a very tiny fraction of light is, is received by B. Um, so what is the consequence of this? Uh, well, or you can say that I have more money so I can build you know, bigger uh, mirrors. Of course, that is better. But you can reduce your length. But then the question is, are you able to trade off your acceleration noise so that reducing the length doesn't hurt you? So that's, it's a, it's a little tricky problem. So as it turns out, the the exercise has been done for LISA, the laser interferometer space antenna, and exactly they got the five million kilometers. Exactly. So the the point is, it turns out I think I think, you know, if I were to guess what happened is that probably they did this, they calculated the shot noise, then they set the requirement of accelerator noise to exactly just fit where the <laughs> knee of the rising um, I don't know. Maybe people know here. So right, you, you have the frequency. Your shot noise at this frequency, then it rises up at a, you know, when the frequency of the gravitational wave is comparable to the uh, one over the length of your, your, your arm. And then, basically, you could just set your acceleration noise requirement in such a way that you just have a valley there at you know, 10 millihertz. So that turns out to be the LISA noise budget. But let me let me go a little more about how such an interferometer works. So, because of the issue that you know we have this um, you know 0.5 meter um, aperture and then 12.5 kilometer beam, the light is very weak. If you want to have a mirror reflected and send it back, you get another reduction of signal. So what happens in LISA is that there's no mirrors and Interferometer in the usual sense. What is done is that uh, light is detected. You know, basically um, lasers are sent between spacecraft, and then the light is detected right there, compared with the local laser, and then the interferometer signal is formed synthetically. Um, and then the exact way to do this. And the other problem is the arm lengths are not exactly equal. So you just you don't normally do the micro you can't do the usual Michelson interferometer because the usual Michelson doesn't have the right um, cancellation of the noise. So the, the 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 interesting trick here is the so-called time delay interferometry, uh, invented by Armstrong, Estebro, and Tinto, and these guys are at maybe are at a JPL. So uh, basically, if you have a uh, three arms that is unequal in general. So what the view, the naive view here is that you have three clocks, and then you send signals to neighboring um, clocks, and you compare the clocks, and then you make up six channels, because you have six links of signals. And the six channels, and you have three clock noises in terms of how many linear algebra (laughs) dimensions you have, and when you subtract these, you have three noise-free channels, and these three channels are the channels where you cancel the laser noise. So one way to illustrate this is to show that, you know, for example, you have the 1, 2, 3, and then you send signal from 2 to 1, and then you send it back. So basically what you do is you take the arrival time here minus the arrival time here. You take this time minus the other time. So at the end, the, the clock reading in here is canceled, but then your left with the clock here and the clock here of the spacecraft two. On the other hand, if you do the same thing with the three, um, but then if you try to cancel this one and that one, they're not obtained at the same time. So you're not canceling your noise at the same time. So the the trick is to do more such combinations and try to figure out ways to cancel out the noise. And the one way here is that you continue to propagate here, and then you propagate back here. And then you take this one, you propagate here, and then you propagate back here. So for this more complicated loop in the space-time diagram, what you find out is that if you combine all these arrival times, you can subtract all the clock noises, and then you have gravitational wave signals remaining. And then you work out all these kind of combinations. And these are called time delay interferometry combinations that can actually cancel noise. without having to interfere uh, and without, without having to send light back and forth and interfere and without, um, uh, yeah, without having to send back and forth. You just calculate and then cancel. You still cancel clock noise. So this is a special feature of of LISA. Of course, in reality, what happens is not that simple. You don't have a dot with a clock and compare just the clocks. What happens is on each spacecraft, you have two test masses and you have two lasers. So with, re- with respect to the previous picture, you're adding six additional links uh, because you have two more signals on each spacecraft. But you have three additional channels of laser noise. And you have three additional test mass degrees of freedom. And yeah, and then you cancel you cancel this. And then, basically, it still works out in the counting sense. But the details are complicated for me. So, and then, as I said, you know, if we look at least a noise spectrum, the, the point is that if we, sh- the, here is the shot noise and here it rise up because the sensitivity becomes no good at high gravitational wave frequencies. And here is acceleration noise. And the problem is here, if you move to a shorter arm, you can move away this knee. You collect more signal, you, co- you collect more light So your sensitivity here becomes better, but then your acceleration noise becomes worse. So the total noise curve shifts this way. If you have a longer arm, your acceleration noise becomes um, better, but you collect less light, and then these raises up. So basically, if you want to reach a better sensitivity at this hertz, 10 millihertz, this is kind of a local minimum, a local stability point for designing the Lisa interferometer. And in this case, as, as we, said, and it's actually fairly easy to argue, I won't go into the details, the fact that you have this, you know, basically the light, the fact that you have this, you have this picture of having 0.5 meters and going all the way and expanding to this higher beam, the loss is so high, it turns out just, you know, having squeezing and quantum mechanical sensitivity doesn't seem to help you this much in this particular configuration. Of course, um, there's, a, you, know, I, you know, I guess I won't go into the details, but I think the, the, there, there are, you know, potential space missions that are designed beyond LISA where people think about using Fabry-Pérot cavities, et cetera. But I think the problem is maybe uh, thinking about quantum enhancement of gravitational detection in space doesn't seem to be the same kind of enhancement in, 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 on the Earth, for example. Maybe the enhancement doesn't need to be the same way as in LIGO or use squeezing, et cetera. Maybe it's just different ways. Um, that's sort of my intuitive understanding. So let me summarize uh, my, my talk. So basically, ground-based and space-based detection for gravitational waves, they really go after different sources, either it is based is stellar mass object or supermassive black holes. And ground-based detectors, squeezing improved sensitivity and quantum mechanics may play a major role in the future. And it turns out because our detectors are at the standard quantum limit, you may use these experiments to study microscopic quantum mechanics. Um, which I didn't mention, but mention here. So, and the other thing is in space, gravitational wave detection mostly benefit from the long arm length. And it looks like people would like to sacrifice the collection of light over you know, the actual getting better uh, acceleration noise reduction. And therefore, they seem to have schemes, made up schemes like LISA, et cetera, which are highly lossy, and it's not clear how quantum mechanics helps. On the other hand, there are proposals of using atom interferometers as, you know, but it's a totally different regime. And then I guess it's, it's good to think about such, such, such projects. But there, you know, LISA has been thought about for a long time and many people have been thinking about it. There are prototype experiments, et cetera. And I think for atom interferometer there needs to be the effort also to think about all the sorts of noises, et cetera, and to really get it to the same kind of um, comprehensive understanding as, as as we do for LISA. So thank you. And this is thank you.